How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Can you say amen? Amen. Is God good? Yes. He's good all the time, isn't he? Yes. Good to see all of you here today. God bless you. Uh, so today was destined to be the third part of our series entitled Running to Win, which deals with the three components of the mindset of a champion. And how many remember what the first component of the mindset of a champion was from two Sundays ago? So whoever blurts it out gets $5. A vision for victory. Somebody give that lady $5. <laughs> Who remembers what the second component was from last Sunday? An assessment of the present, right? You need an assessment of the present. First, a vision for victory. Second, an assessment of the present. And the third component, which was destined to be today, is a workable plan. You need all three of those things. You need a vision for victory. You need an assessment for the present. And you need a workable plan. There, I finished the series. Now... I feel the Lord has led me to postpone this third installment till next month in order to deal with something that is of utmost importance. And how many of you know that when, that when the Spirit of the Lord moves you on, you don't worry about what you scheduled and you don't worry about what you plan? I remember one day I told the Lord, I said, Lord, you're messing up my plan. And I heard him laugh just like you were laughing there. I said, Lord, what's so funny? He said, it's just that you think I'm concerned about your plan and your schedule. How many know the scripture says many are the plans of a man's heart, but it is the will of the Lord that prevails. And so today uh, I'm going to give you what the Lord has put in my heart. And of course, the Lord put this in my heart at three o'clock this morning. Uh, So go ahead and put that in the next pastor's appreciation skit, which I know it will be in there. How many have heard of John MacArthur? How many have heard of his strange fire campaign? Well, John MacArthur has released an all-out attack against charismatic believers in his recent Strange Fire campaign. He released his Strange Fire conference this week from October 16th through the 19th at his Southern California church. It was attended by 4,000 people, and it was live-streamed by tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Now, the concept behind John John uh, John MacArthur's... John almost said John Maxwell... The concept behind John, Max, John MacArthur's... Uh, slow down. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus for clarity, for peace, for truth, for reality, for establishment. I prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. So the concept behind John MacArthur's strange fire message comes from Leviticus 10. And in Leviticus 10, there were two Levite priests, one named Nadab, the other named Abihu. These two Levite priests were the sons of Aaron. And they went into the tabernacle of the Lord, and they took incense that had been offered in pagan rituals, and they offered it as fire before the Lord. And the scripture says that they offered strange fire. The NIV says unauthorized fire before the Lord. The point was that they offered to the Lord an offering that was taken from some other type of pagan worship. It was an offering that God had commanded them not to offer in his house. And because of that, God broke out in fire against them and consumed them. John MacArthur argues that the entire charismatic movement is guilty of idolatrous worship, is a false church, and is comprised of deceivers and the deceived. Now let me define for you the charismatic movement according to John MacArthur. 
The charismatic movement is comprised of any and every Christian who believes in the ongoing validity of the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. If you believe that God still heals today, you are a charismatic Christian. If you believe that God still gives the gift of tongues today, you are a charismatic Christian. If you believe that God still speaks prophetically today, you are a charismatic Christian. If you heard the invitation to be healed and came to this altar today, you are a charismatic Christian. If you got healed today, you're a charismatic Christian. If you clapped when you heard somebody got healed today, you're a charismatic Christian. You hearing me? Charismatic Christians simply believe in the ongoing validity of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that are spoken of in Scripture. And John MacArthur says, if you are a charismatic Christian, you're a part of a false church, you are deceived, and you need to come out of that false church and stop, stop offering idolatrous worship to God. John MacArthur levels such charges against the charismatic movement as offering idolatrous worship to God, as constantly blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and as being comprised of nothing more than deceivers and the deceived. Now, this is not just one statement that's being taken out of context. John MacArthur released 27 pre-conference videos on YouTube, which systematically laid out the details of his position. And John MacArthur does, in one out of those 27 videos, he does acknowledge that there are a few classic Pentecostal pastors who actually study their Bibles, and there may even be a few people who are saved in their churches. But John MacArthur goes on to say that salvation is not enough. You need to walk in the truth. And what is the truth to John MacArthur? The truth is that the ongoing that there is no ongoing validity to the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, that God does not heal through the laying on of hands, that the Holy Spirit does not give the gift of tongues. And John MacArthur believes that if you believe that he does, you are a part of a false church. And he challenges the few Pentecostal preachers that he sees as really believing the gospel to join him in his assault against the rest of the charismatic movement and to come out of the heresy of what he calls charismatic theology. Now, John MacArthur's theological position is what has come to be called cessationism. Look at your neighbor and say cessationism. Cessationism is the idea that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased at the end of the first century. The classic articulation of classical cessationism was brought by a man by the name of Benjamin B. Warfield in the early 1900s. Benjamin B. Warfield wrote, wrote a book called Miracles, Yesterday and Today, True and False. And Benjamin B. Warfield had two premises, and there were two groups that he wanted to attack and to refute. The first group were the, the liberals, the 18th century or the 19th century liberals. And the liberals were claiming that the miracles of the Bible were not real. That when you read the Bible and you see miracles in the Bible, those miracles are not real. They're false. They're fake. Uh, Benjamin Warfield wanted to refute those individuals. Warfield said, no, the miracles in the Bible were absolutely real. God worked miracles during Bible times. But the second group that he wanted to refute 
were the Pentecostals. And the Pentecostals at that time were claiming that God was continuing to work miracles. That the same miracles he did in the Bible, he continues to do today. And Warfield said, no, God does not do miracles anymore. He's no longer pouring out his spirit anymore. There's no more gift of tongues or gift of prophecy or gift of healing or any other of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that God used to give during biblical times. And so his book was called Miracles Yesterday, meaning biblical times, and today, current times. True during biblical times and false during current times. That was his message, and that is the classic articulation of the cessationist position. Now, over against the cessationist position is what's called the continuationist position, which means that the gifts of the Spirit continue. They keep going. They don't stop. They continue all the way till the coming of Jesus Christ. And I've just established that if you even clapped or broke a smile when you heard somebody in here got healed, you are a continuationist. Can I get a witness? Now, the cessationist position is that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as they were given during biblical times, had a very specific purpose. And when that purpose was fulfilled, they were no longer necessary. The cessationist position is that the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit was to authenticate the gospel while the canon of Scripture was still being written. Here's how it spells out. During the New Testament period, when the apostles were still alive, The New Testament scriptures were still being written, and because the New Testament canon was not complete, the people needed something to verify that what the apostles were preaching was the word of God. And so God allowed there to be a special dispensation of miracles, signs, and wonders during that season. But once the canon of Scripture was closed, that is, after John the Apostle wrote the Revelation in the late 90s A.D. on the island of Patmos, and the the canon of Scripture was closed, then the Holy Spirit decided that he no longer needed to give miraculous gifts to the church anymore because now we have the canon of Scripture. During the New Testament times, they had the gifts of the Spirit, but from the end of the first century on, we have the canon of Scripture, and that's why it's called cessationism because it teaches that the gifts of the Spirit ceased. That is, the Holy Spirit stopped giving them at the end of the first century. Now, first, let me say, before I respond to this idea, that my goal is not to attack John MacArthur. John MacArthur is calling all charismatics a false church. I'm not here today to call him a false church. He says we're guilty of offering strange fire to God and participating in idolatry. I'm not here to say he's participating in idolatry. I think there's too much cross-demonization that is happening in the body of Christ. We say you're bad, and so you say we're bad. You say we're of the devil, so we say you're of the devil. And it's not my intention to attack anyone's person or their church or their movement or their character or question their salvation. All of that stuff is between him and God. Amen? Amen. I will not speculate concerning his status before God. Some people have asked me, do you think he's blasphemed the Holy Spirit? And my answer is, God will have to answer that question for all of us. It's not for me to speculate on whether anybody has blasphemed the Holy Spirit or not. But I do intend to address his position in light of Scripture. Because at the end of the day, it's not about what I say. It's not about what John MacArthur says. It's about what the Bible says. Can we agree on that? At the end of the day, it's not about what any teacher says. It's about what the Bible teaches. And so if I teach anything that is contrary to what the Word of God says, I want to correct it. I want to know it, and I want to correct it. 
And so I've listened carefully to John MacArthur and the cessationist position to see if there's anything biblically valid, any biblically valid critique. Now, there's one skill that we all need to master, not just as, as charismatics, but as Christians, and not just as Christians, but as human beings. Amen. And that skill is the ability to hear the truth, even if it comes from the mouth of somebody that's, that you're mad at. See, what tends to happen is we get angry at somebody, and our ability to hear the truth from their mouth is it's completely gone. It's like you're in an argument with your spouse, and at this moment, I'm so mad at you, but at that moment when you're, argue, when you're arguing with your spouse, your spouse might say something true. Your spouse might bring about a, a perspective that you didn't think of before. Can you, in the middle of an argument, stop and say, I see your point on that. I might still be mad at you, but I see your point on that. I might not agree on everything you're saying, but I see your point on that. And so I, I want to practice that skill and hone that skill. And so I began to listen to what John MacArthur was saying to see, is there anything that we as charismatic Pentecostals need to get a hold of and take into account? And, is, and specifically, is there any biblical engagement that he can bring to us to show us from scripture the area of er, error of our ways? Is there anything that would challenge what we do from scripture, if so, I want to hear it. And so not only did I watch all 27 of those videos, but I also read several different responses. I read the transcript of his opening session, and I read several blogs and articles from other notable cessationists and bloggers who are defending the position, and many of their blog articles were called things like a case for cessationism, the biblical grounds for cessationism. And the one thing that was quite disappointing to me is that in all of these articles that claim to, to provide a biblical basis for cessationism, there was no biblical basis provided at all. Okay. So the first thing I want you to know is that my reasons for taking the time in a Sunday morning service to talk on this subject are twofold. The first reason is that I wish to speak to those in the Pentecostal charismatic churches who might be moved by John MacArthur's attack. Whenever someone as notable as John MacArthur says something as, as, as extreme as what he's saying right now, people, people take notice. I mean, when a highly respected leader in the body of Christ calls a half billion believers unsaved deceivers and deceived. People take notice. And some of you probably have not even heard that he's saying these things and you're wondering, you know, what's even going on with this? I don't even know who John MacArthur is. That's okay. I just want you to be armed and dangerous if you do come across this. So I'm not only speaking to those individuals who are in this room, but to the thousands of people around the world who listen to our podcast via live, watch our live stream or listen to our podcast every week. So there's a broader audience of people that I'm speaking to. And I want to show you from scripture that you have no cause for alarm. I want to show you from scripture, first of all, that I am not the standard that we live by and neither is John MacArthur, but the Bible is the standard and any critique of any movement must be a biblical critique if it is to hold any weight. Amen. And I'm going to show you that John MacArthur has zero scriptural basis for his attack on the charismatic movement. Second, the second reason I'm talking like this is because I see this as a great opportunity to renew our commitment to what is central to the life and being of our church. Amen. 
Not only do I want to strengthen the hands of those who might be moved, but I also want to strengthen those who will not be moved. Some of you are in this room, you are so strong in the things of the Spirit. You say, I don't care what he says. I don't care what anybody says. I'm not shaken by that. I'm not moved by that. Shoot, West Side, you know? I want to take this opportunity to unequivocally affirm that we are a charismatic church. And that means that we believe in the ongoing validity of the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And not only do we believe in them, but we seek to operate in them as often as the Spirit would enable us to. And so in this message, I'm going to lay out the biblical grounds for this belief and practice. First... Let me explain the cessationist position just a little bit more for those of you who are interested to know. So, the fundamental premise that undergirds the cessationist position is the principle of sola scriptura. Look at your neighbor and say, sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. Sola scriptura was one of the great cries of the Reformation, and it means only scripture only scripture sola scriptura is the principle of the sufficiency of the scriptures and sola scriptura was the principle that martin luther stood on when he was being attacked by the roman catholic church when he was being commanded to recant his position and at the diet of worms when martin luther was on trial for his position and he was told to recant on penalty of death his response was here i stand i can do no other so help me god why did he say here i stand not because he was committed to his view, but because there was so much scripture embedded in his view that he felt he would have had to deny the scriptures in order to deny his view. Luther's fundamental supposition was that I'll change anything if you can show me where it is in the Bible. If you can show me in scripture that I'm wrong, I'll change anything. But if you are just telling me to recant what I'm doing and you have no scripture to support it whatsoever, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Even at the cost of my life, Luther is saying, I can't turn from what I see clearly in the words of scripture. So help me God, the principle of sola scriptura. And the principle of sola scriptura demands that we believe and confess Only that which is clearly taught in Scripture. Meaning, when we we create a doctrine, and a doctrine is a teaching, whatever doctrine we confess or believe must be found in Scripture. It must be firmly rooted in Scripture. Meaning, we're not making up doctrines off the top of our head. We're not going into our prayer closet and praying down doctrines. We're not getting prophetic words from heaven and coming out saying, I know the Bible says this, but I got a prophetic word about it. Here's the doctrine. We're not getting doctrines from our prayer closet. We're not getting doctrines from angelic visitations. We're not getting doctrines from the mission field. Our doctrines, what we believe and teach, comes from Scripture. We stand or fall on the word of God. And when I'm talking about the word of God, I'm talking about sola scriptura. 
I'm talking about only Scripture. I'm talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture, what we mean is that Scripture is enough, meaning it is the foundation for teaching, for doctrine, for correction, for rebuke, for reproving. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. The word in the Greek, theopneustos, it means God breathes. It means God grabbed a man and went... And breathed into him, and he wrote scripture. These holy men of God, Peter says, wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, so that what they wrote was the very words of the living God. And there's nothing missing from the witness of scripture, meaning to understand doctrine, to understand truth, to understand the way of salvation, to understand the requirements of God, to understand his promises and his commands. We go to scripture. But there is a misconception that is running rampant in the world right now. And that misconception is that charismatics only love the experience of the Spirit, but don't really care much about the Bible. And non-charismatics love the Bible so much, and that's the problem they have with charismatics, that charismatics don't love the Bible enough. And matter of fact, when I talk to Pentecostal charismatics, I often sense this inferiority complex, this scriptural inferiority complex. We feel like they're more biblical than we are. And we're just more experiential than they are. Cessationists attack charismatics for believing in prophecy, for instance. They argue that charismatics base their theology on private revelations they receive rather than scripture. This is what John MacArthur is teaching at the Strange Fire Conference. He and there, uh, there, he and R.C. Sproul are actually they are con- they are um, comparing modern charismatics with the Zwickau prophets of the 16th century, which was an Anabaptist group, radical Reformation, <clears throat> and they believed more in. They believe more in what they received in private revelations than Scripture. And matter of fact, they, were, they looked down on Luther and the Reformers for, for being all about Scripture. Please, Scripture, please. I got a revelation. And they're saying that's what modern Pentecostal charismatics are doing. Listen, if you find some modern charismatic Pentecostals who are doing that, stay away from them. If you went to a church, if you know somebody who goes to a church like that, tell them to get up out that church. That's dangerous. But that is not what the majority of charismatic Pentecostals are doing. And that definitely is not what we are doing. So, but cessationists underneath their attack, what they believe is that for us to believe in the ongoing validity specifically of the gift of prophecy. And the gift of prophecy, when we're talking about prophecy, we're talking about God continuing to speak. We're talking about the voice of God. When somebody says, This is what the Lord says. The Lord told me to tell you. The the members of this movement believe that if God continues to speak through prophecy, then scripture is not sufficient. And so we charismatics who believe in the ongoing validity of prophecy don't believe scripture is sufficient. So if you just put in the hashtag sola scriptura in Twitter... All of these tweets say, so, I mean, I put in the hashtag strange fire in Twitter. All of these tweets, sola scriptura, scripture's enough, scripture's enough, only scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, sola scriptura. What they're saying is, we only need scripture, we don't need prophecy. We don't need tongues. 
Scripture is enough. And what they are saying is that the doctrine of cessationism rests firmly upon the foundation of the principle of sola scriptura. Are you following me? Now, wait a minute. Let's take this back a step further. How did we define sola scriptura? Only scripture, right? It means that whatever you believe and teach has got to be in the Bible. Right? If you believe it, you can only believe it because it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, you must believe it. And if the Bible clearly teaches it over and over again, you got to believe it. And if the Bible doesn't teach it, but you believe it, you're not standing on the foundation of sola scriptura. Follow me here. All right. The problem is that cessationism, which claims to rest on the principle of sola scriptura, cessationism itself is not taught in the Bible. Cessationism claims to rest on the foundation of sola scriptura, but it doesn't qualify. Sola scriptura itself refutes cessationism. If the cessationists really believe sola scriptura, they couldn't be cessationists anymore. Because it's not taught in the Bible. In fact, you have to overturn large portions of scripture. And say that they no longer apply in order to be a cessationist. So you have to overturn large portions of the Bible and say, this is no longer valid. Acts chapter 2, no longer valid. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, no longer valid. Ephesians 4, 11 and following, no longer valid. Romans 12, 6 through 8, no longer valid. But I believe only scripture. Except these large portions of scripture which are no longer valid. Cessationism itself is actually a post-biblical doctrine that has been imposed upon Scripture. It's really more of a critique of Scripture than it is of a group. The Bible explicitly teaches us to continue to seek and practice the gifts of the Spirit until the coming of Jesus Christ and 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 the gift that the Bible commands us to seek more than any other gift. Guess what? Prophecy. The very one, they say, if you believe in prophecy, you don't believe in the Bible. That's the very gift the Bible commands us to seek more than any other gift. So, in other words, the Bible didn't know what it was talking about when it told us to seek that gift. Cessationists say that if the gift of prophecy continues, the scriptures would not be all sufficient. My response is, scripture is all sufficient. And it says that the gift of prophecy continues. So either the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about or the cessationists are wrong. Now I want to go to scripture a little bit. I've given you a little background. Now I want to take you to the Bible a little bit to show you what I'm talking about. Let's look at some of these vast portions of scripture. We're not talking about overturning one verse. We're not talking about reinterpreting one small passage. We're talking about a central theme in the New Testament scriptures that recurs again and again and again and again must systematically be overturned, reinterpreted, and negated in order to sustain the cessationist position. Now, if you go to Acts chapter 2, let's start with Acts chapter 2. How's that? Open your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. The Bible says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, 
There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house where they were assembled together. And cloven tongues as of fire separated and rested above each head. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So all of a sudden, these disciples in the upper room, 120 of them in all, they're in prayer for 10 days and suddenly... The Holy Spirit comes in fire, and they're all baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Now, verse 5 and following tells us that there was a group of Jews from the dispersion. They were dispersed all over the Greco-Roman world. They had returned to Jerusalem for the feast, and they had come from many countries. The dispersion was already 400 years old, or almost 400 years old, 365 years old. And so these people in other countries, most of them did not speak Hebrew. They spoke all of these different languages, and, and, and the book of Acts begins to name the nations where they came from, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Tamia, and so forth, and so on and so forth. And they spoke all of these different languages. They hear this commotion in the upper room, and they come near to see what's happening, and what they hear coming out of the room are these Hebrews, meaning they only speak Aramaic, and they're speaking all these languages. It's like... Walking by a church full of all white people and hearing one of them speaking Tagalog and another one speaking Korean and another one speaking Vietnamese and another one speaking Spanish and another one is, you know, another speaking Twi and another one speaking Kenyan, you know. I mean, all of these languages coming out of this, 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 this homogenous ethnic group. All of these different languages are coming out. And so the people are like, man, these people have lost their mind. And the crowd gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the Lord. Get that. And, and, and the crowd is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, and people are saying, man, these people have lost their minds. So these people are drunk. And Peter stands up and preaches the first Pentecost sermon. But mind you that the sermon that gave birth to the New Testament church was an explanation of how these crazy charismatic people are acting. And he says, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Amen. It's only 9 a.m. Peter had a, a sense of humor. <laughs> it's too early to drink. The bars aren't even open yet. <laughs> these people aren't drunk. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Isn't it interesting that he goes straight to scripture? Yeah. They have an experience and he takes it straight to scripture. And which happened first? The experience. Isn't that strange? That they have this powerful experience of the spirit of the spirit, and Peter immediately goes to scripture to find it. And guess where he finds it? Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Peter stands up, This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, says he, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Upon my servants and my handmaidens will I pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show signs in the heavens above, wonders in the earth beneath, and it shall come to pass in that day that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He goes from the explanation of what the Holy Spirit did to the proclamation of Jesus the Messiah. Now you know that Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by signs and wonders which he did amongst you. Isn't it funny that Jesus was attested by signs and wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit? He says, but you took him by lawless hands and put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God has raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ. This is the stone you builders rejected. He has become the chief cornerstone in their salvation in no other name. 
The scripture says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, go to Acts 2.38. I want you to see this so you know I'm not making this up. Acts 2.38, what does it say? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children to the end of the first century. Until the Apostle John dies. And once the canon is closed, the gift ain't for you anymore. No, he says the gift is for you and for your children. For as many are as afar off. It's as if he could see the doctrine of cessationism coming. As many are as afar off. No, they still might think only a hundred years out. As many as the Lord our God should call. Are you called to salvation through Jesus Christ? The gift is for you. That's the Bible. Did I put that in there? Did I prophesy? Did I get that in my prayer closet in a vision? Did an angel come tell me that? And I come tell you, an angel told me this. Or did I get this from the Bible? What? A charismatic quoting the Bible? No. Moving right along now. Now go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians has the thickest theology of the spiritual gifts of any book of the New Testament. Okay? However, the thing we need to understand, see, this is the thing we need to understand in general about the spiritual gifts. No teaching on the spiritual gift is an add-on. The teaching on the spiritual gifts is one component of a thoroughgoing theology. Meaning everything you believe, your whole theological system, it's just part of it. It leads to it. So when Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he's not talking about an add-on like he has his theology and then the gifts of the Spirit over here. No, it's all part of it. Now, part of Paul's theology is what we call his eschatology. Say eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the eschatos. The the word eschatos means end. Eschatology is the study of the end time. When we're looking at Paul's end time theologies, he's talking about the time period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. The first coming of Jesus Christ was when he was born in a manger. And then he lived for 33 years, died on a cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. At the end of the age, the second coming will occur. The second coming is when he descends from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will rise, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up in the air to meet the caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So in Paul's eschatological mind, in his end time thinking, the church age, the age that, that he was living in, and the age that we are living in, it's all the same age. It ends with the second coming of Jesus Christ. You follow me? Now, look at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all 
knowledge. He's talking about utterance and he's talking about knowledge. And here in this passage, he's beginning, actually, this is the beginning of Paul's charismatic theology. Because later he will specify that the type of utterance he's talking about is spirit-inspired utterance. And the type of knowledge he's talking about is spirit-given knowledge. That is, when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he's not talking about natural human capacities. He is talking about Holy Spirit-given capacities. He's talking about something that goes beyond what can be done in the natural by a human person. When the Holy Spirit gives, for instance, a gift of word of knowledge, it is supernatural knowledge that there's no way you could have come up with. It's funny that John MacArthur lists Charles Spurgeon as a notable cessationist. And Charles Spurgeon, if you haven't heard of him, you can Google him later. Spurgeon is known as the greatest preacher in the history of the church, early 1900s, turn of the century. Charles Spurgeon preached so powerfully that from a, from a certain point in his ministry for the rest of his life, there was never a hall that was big enough to hold the crowds that would come to see him preach. Amen. Literally, there were people turned away at the door at every meeting for the rest of his life. And Charles Spurgeon taught explicitly that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer for today. However, he flowed in the gifts and didn't know it. He didn't know how to define it. And he writes in his autobiography that there are at least 12 situations when suddenly he had knowledge of someone that he didn't know how he knew it. In one of his meetings, he said he looked out at a guy and said, those gloves you're wearing are stolen. Those are not your gloves. You stole those gloves. And he said, the guy ran up and gave them to him and said, please don't tell my mama, and left. (laughs) There was another time where there was a man sitting in the church, and there was thousands of people there, and he looked out at the man, and he looked at him, and he said, he said, you stole in your shop. He told him what his, his profession was. He says, you're a this. I forget what it was. He says, and you kept your shop open last Sunday, and you made nine pence sale. You, you saw, it was a nine, the profit was nine pence. It was only worth four pence, but you made a nine pence profit on it. And he told the guy, and the guy was all convicted, and the guy got saved because he was scared that this preacher knew everything about him. And Spurgeon would write about these events, and he said there was at least a dozen times, at least a dozen more times in my life in ministry when suddenly I'm walking in the hallway and I see somebody and I know who they are and I tell them things about themselves that there's no way I could have known in the natural. It's funny, he's teaching the gifts of the Spirit are not for today, but he's flowing in them and he doesn't know it. He's moving in the word of knowledge. That's the gift of word of knowledge. It's a spiritual gift. Now moving on, Paul says... Verse 6, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Verse 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. What, what is the purpose of the spiritual gifts? Just to get the gospel started and then peace out? Paul says, you do not lack any spiritual gift while you wait for the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. Meaning the gifts of the Spirit will continue until the coming of Jesus Christ. Now this is important for us to note. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're just going to look at some of the key passages. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant. Look at your neighbor and say, I don't want you to be ignorant. Isn't it interesting? The word ignorant, the word ignorant. There's nothing more ignorant than the word ignorant. You ignored two letters of the word. 
He goes on in verse 2 and says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Literally, there were people apparently in the Corinthian church who were prophesying negative stuff about Jesus and saying the Holy Spirit told them. And Paul said, let me lay down some fun. I mean, can you imagine how out of order that church must have been? Can you imagine being in church and somebody stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, Jesus be cursed. Can you imagine being in that church? And Paul has to set it in order, meaning there was nobody there who could say, I don't think that was God. And so Paul has to lay foundational order in the church. He says, you cannot curse Jesus and it be the Holy Spirit. But then you can't bless Jesus and it not be the Holy Spirit. Now he's giving them some guidelines for discernment. Then he goes on in verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Verse 7. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Say manifestation. Manifestation. The word in the Greek is epiphany. It means appearing. The manifestation of the Spirit is the appearing of the Spirit. The thing you and I need to understand is that the gifts of the Spirit are not divine pixie dust that God sprinkles from heaven. The gifts of the Spirit are not distinct from God Himself. The gifts of the Spirit are not distinct from the Spirit Himself. When the Spirit gives a gift, the Spirit is the gift. That means when God manifests the gift of healing, it was the Spirit of God that did the healing. If, if you laid hands on someone, when I laid hands on so-and-so at the altar today and she was healed, it was the Spirit of God that did the healing, not me. It, it, it came through me, but it was not from me. It was not of me. And it, neither was it some divine healing dust that God sprinkled. God himself showed up, manifested right here at this altar, and touched her and broke that sickness off of her body. It's the manifestation of the Spirit. It means what, we're, what we are looking for is the Spirit to show up. Amen? Amen. And then he begins to explain what these gifts are from verse 8 on. And he puts them, we can put them into three categories. There's the utterance or speaking gifts, which is the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of interpretation of tongues. And then there's the power gifts, which are the gift of faith, the gift of healing, and the gift of working of miracles. And then there's the knowing gifts, which is the gift of word of knowledge, the gift of word of wisdom, and the gift of discerning of spirits. And at some point we'll come back and we'll teach through all of those gifts because I don't want you to be uninformed about the spiritual gifts. But he ends by saying all of these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Paul says the Holy Spirit gives these gifts. This is what Paul is saying, and this is what cessationism has to overturn in order to teach what it teaches. All right. Now, if you go on, first of all, look at 1231, the very last verse of chapter 12. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Look at your neighbor and say, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Let me ask you, are you in obedience to that command? Are you in obedience to that command to eagerly desire the greater gifts? Do you desire the spiritual gifts? See, I'm, what I'm here to tell you today is we're not backing off because this is controversial. We're taking a step further. What I'm here to tell you is that we just got started. I'm not here to say, now, I know there's a lot of controversy out there about the gifts of the Spirit, so we're going to tone it down for a while. No, we're going to step it up. 
We're re- why? Because this is Bible. John MacArthur said, stop it. But Paul said, desire it. Who am I going to listen to? Eagerly desire the greater gifts. And then he says, yet I will show you the most excellent way. And now we're going to 1 Corinthians 13, which is a very important passage. And what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13 is that while the gifts of the Spirit are super important, they're not all important. There's something more important than spiritual gifts. It's called love. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and when he talks about speaking with the tongues of angels, he's talking about speaking in tongues. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Can you imagine I came to church, took one of those cymbals out of the drum cage, and stood here next to you in church, Ding, 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 and just beat the cymbal in your face. Can you imagine the person next to you in church is just beating a cymbal, looking at you? What would that be like? How would you feel about that? You'd be annoyed. Man, these people are crazy. She just stood next to me and just beat a cymbal the whole service. That's what it's like you're speaking in tongues and you can't greet nobody. You can talk in tongues, fall out and cry, but you can't give anybody a hug. Oh, don't touch me. I don't want people touching me all up in my space. If I speak with the tongues of men, I don't care if I speak in every tongue that God ever gave. If I ain't got love, ding, ding, ding. And you know what God hears in heaven? Ding, 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 ding. There goes that unloving tongue talker. My mom said when I was a baby, she was stuck on the side of the road. One time her car broke down, and one of the members of her church was driving by, and she's like, oh, thank God I'm safe. Wait, 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 wait. And she said that lady looked over out of the corner of her eye, but she's speaking in tongues, and just kept driving. You ain't stopping me. He goes on in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, I, I got the faith. I can go stand in front of a mountain and say, Be thou lifted up and cast into the sea. And it obeys me. But I don't have love. I ain't nothing. He goes on to say, If I have the gift of prophecy. Oh, I already said that. He said, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned. That sounds very noble, isn't it? They come and they say, One of you is going to die by fire. And I say, I'll do it. But it's all about me looking good in front of you. Not because I love you. And I don't have love. It profits me nothing. And then he says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Oh, we need that one, don't we? Keeps no record of wrongs. Some of you need to go home and destroy them records. Because you've got detailed records of what people did to you going all the way back to your childhood. And some of you in your marriage, in your very marriage, right in the bedroom next, where, next to your bed, you got a whole, uh, a whole file cabinet full of stuff your wife did to you. Stuff your husband did. You need to get rid of that. Come on, we're going to speak in tongues, but let's do it with love. He says it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes 
It always perseveres. Love never fails. Verse 8, love never fails. Oh, but listen to this. Uh-oh. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. And there we found the one passage of scripture, the one little lonely passage of scripture that's like the one little lonely chest hair on on Jason's chest. You imagine Jason walking around with no shirt on just just pushing out that one chest hair. That's what cessationism does. Just pushes out that one verse of scripture. (laughs) All right. So it says prophecies will cease. Tongues will be stilled. When? When the perfect comes. When the completeness comes, it says, when that which is complete, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And the cessationist would say the perfection, the completeness is the canon of Scripture. And when the canon of Scripture came, the completeness came, then we can do away with the in part, which is prophecy. Makes sense, right? Well, I got one little question. When Paul said... We know in part, and we prophesy in part. Was he including himself in that? Yes. When you say we, are you talking about us? Are you talking about (laughs) y'all? See, there's a big difference between Paul saying, for y'all know in part, and y'all prophesy in part. But Paul said, we know in part. And we prophesy in part. And it seems that he's talking about what he's writing right now. What he's writing right now is included in this in part. Now, Paul cannot be saying we, the New Testament community, including the apostolic community, we know in part and we're prophesying in part and we're writing these New Testament letters out of the knowledge God has given us. But the knowledge God is giving us is in part. And he cannot at the same time be saying, we know in part until I finish writing this letter and then the completeness has come. In other words, if he includes himself in the in part, then he cannot at the same time mean that what he is writing is the completeness. Are you hearing me? Secondly, the interpretation that sees scripture here violates one of the foundational principles of for interpreting scripture. You see, you can't just interpret the Bible the way you want to. There are certain principles that govern our interpretation of scripture. And one of the primary principles that govern a valid interpretation of scripture, and even the cessationists teach this principle. The principle is scripture must interpret scripture. That means that if there is a question about a text of scripture that's not clear, you find clarity by comparing it to passages that are clear. So if this passage of Scripture actually says the gifts of the Spirit are going to cease, 
then we should be able to compare it to other passages of Scripture that clearly teach the gifts of the Spirit are going to cease. And it should make it clear. The problem is when we begin to compare this passage of Scripture to other passages on the gifts of the Spirit, we see the opposite. That every other passage of Scripture speaks to the continuation of the gifts. This passage can only mean one thing. And by the way, Mark Driscoll said that the cessationist interpretation of this passage of Scripture is the worst exegesis he's ever seen in his life. Mark Driscoll said that. He's not a charismatic. But he just reads the Bible and says, we've got to believe what the Bible says here. The completeness, the perfection to come is Jesus Christ himself. Literally, see, see, I'm a cessationist at the end of the day. When Jesus comes and the sound of the trumpet happens and we're all all in the air on the way up to meet the Lord, I'm going to look at you and go, no more prophecy, no more tongues. They're going to cease at the coming of Jesus Christ. Because when you get to heaven, ain't going to be no prophecy. When you get to heaven, there's no more speaking in tongues. When you get to heaven, there's not going to be any healing. Everybody's already healed. No more evangelism. Everybody's saved already. So this passage of Scripture refers to the coming of Jesus Christ. Look, we could take it on and on and on. We could go into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul begins church chapter 14, verse 1, by saying, follow after love and desire the spiritual gifts. And I'll say one word about this, and then I'll close. When Paul says, follow after love and desire the spiritual gifts, what he's saying is that the way it was happening in the Corinthian church, it was not done in love. Why? Because everybody was speaking in tongues, and tongues became an exhibitionist reality. When you got the gift of tongues, you wanted the whole church to see it. So you'd jump up on the stage and, in the middle of the service. And so Paul says, okay, listen, the gift of tongues is great. Matter of fact, he goes on in in chapter 14 to say, I speak in tongues more than all of you. He says in verse 5, I want you all to speak in tongues. But he says, but in the church, you need to be prophesying. Why? Because when you speak in tongues, you build yourself up. But when you prophesy, you build the body up. Seeking the gifts of the Spirit selfishly means only seeking those gifts that make you feel good and make you look good. Seeking the gifts of the Spirit unselfishly or selflessly or in love means that you're constantly asking the Spirit of God to empower you to build up the body of Christ. And it is for the glory of God. Listen, I want you to know I'm jealous for this thing. You say, man, you're, you're coming hard this morning. I never heard you preach against anybody. And, and I th- I'm, I'm saying again, I'm not preaching against anybody. I'm preaching against a position. And why am I coming hard against this position? I'll tell you why. Because there's some young believers in the church who might hear this and get all confused and start feeling like maybe we are wrong and maybe we are heretics and maybe there is something wrong with what we're doing. I mean, he's a reputable guy. Let me tell you something. What has a greater reputation than any man is the Bible. And what I'm showing you from the word of God is that we stand on scripture and that the Bible commands us not only to believe in the gifts of the spirit, but to practice them, to seek them. You know what? I don't want any of us to take a step back over this. I want us all to take a step forward. Because you know what? If you've seen the Holy Spirit move in this church, I'm here to tell you you haven't seen anything yet. 
We haven't even we we haven't even broken the ice. What we've seen is just the tip of the iceberg. God has so much more. God has so much more. I want to see. I believe we're going to see God pour out His Spirit in such power that revival is going to break out. I'm talking about the type of revival that sweeps across across whole regions. You know, when we go to third world countries and we do our mission trips, you know what opens the door for us to preach the gospel? The miracles, the signs, and the wonders. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in Romans chapter 15, he said, I will not venture to speak of anything God has not already done through me. And he said, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit, so that through me the gospel has been fully preached. When the gospel manifested in signs and wonders, Paul said, it's fully preached now. And that's why we don't just wait for miracles. We press for them. We believe for them. If it's not happening Sunday, Sunday, especially my wife, she's just got this passion on the inside. It's like, we got to have some miracles today. Who's getting healed? I don't think any. I'm not hearing nothing. No, no, no. We got to hear something. We got to to stir something up. We got to hear from God. We need God to do something up in this piece. We need to see God heal somebody, break some, set somebody free, break something off people's lives. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the experiential reality of the Holy Spirit. It is the living voice of the living God. It does not devalue Scripture, but it enhances Scripture. Because you see it in Scripture, and then you experience what the Scripture says. That strengthens your relationship with Scripture. But if I tell you you can see it in Scripture, but you can never have it, it decreases your confidence in the Scriptures because you're constantly thinking that what's in the Bible was for them back then, but not for you now. But it is it, we believe more in the sufficiency of Scripture. We love the Scriptures, and we see the Scriptures as the exemplar of the life of faith. What God did in these holy men and women of God, he wants to do it in you. He wants to do it in me. And there's just a stirring in me today. I'm just stirred up today. I'm, I'm stirred up more than ever before to see a move of the Spirit of God. I want to see people just get blasted by the power of God. I want to see people get overwhelmed. I want to see, I just believe we're going to see people get set free just walking in the door of our sanctuary. The Holy Spirit's going to fall so strong. I'm talking about people getting saved in the parking lot before they ever heard anything because the Holy spirit sovereignly moved upon them that's what i believe we're going to see do you believe that today amen i want you just to stand up and i want you just to begin to pray right now on your own just begin to pray that god would begin to release that stirring of the holy spirit god send a moving of your spirit to us send a movie come on just begin to pray out loud just say lord send your holy spirit ask him for a deeper measure of his spirit a greater outpouring of his power Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, fill this place. Glorify Jesus. Glorify Jesus, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Pour out your spirit. Pour out your spirit. Where's Elvin? Elvin, come here. Come stand right here. Pastor Darrell, stand behind him and just put your hand on his back. Jason. Matthew, just come put your hand on him. Elvin's been struggling with psoriasis. We just rebuke that right now in the name of Jesus. We command healing in your body in the name of Jesus. Everybody just pray for Elvin right now. Just pray that God would heal him right now, that psoriasis. 
I feel like there's more healing that's going to happen. If you need healing in your body, just come on up here. Maybe you need healing in your mind. Come on up here. I need more lay pastors and leaders to just come pray for folks. Everybody else, just continue to contend. God, pour out your spirit today. Yes, Lord. Yes, God. Father, pour out your spirit on this house. Even those in the house that just need a fresh baptism of fire, a fresh baptism in the Holy Spirit, God, pour it out right now. Lord, there's some that are just so hungry for you, some that are just so hungry for your power, so hungry for your glory, so hungry, so hungry, so hungry. You said, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. God, pour out the water, pour out the water of life. In the name of Jesus, the fullness of the Spirit. Filled to overflowing, filled to overflowing, filled to overflowing. Touch, oh God, touch, oh God. Strengthen, oh God, strengthen, oh God. Send a great release of your spirit, God. Send a great release of your power, God. Send a great release of your power, God. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power. Every chain, break every chain, break every chain. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising. an army rising up to break every chain break every chain if anybody's hungry just for a new outpouring a new baptism in the holy spirit maybe some of you here today you're just longing to feel the presence of god to be overwhelmed by his glory just come on up to this altar right now we just believe god to fill to overflowing a new overflowing outpouring of the holy spirit if you got the gift of tongues, I just want you to lift your hands to heaven and use it right now. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Paulo Seguero, we want to pray for you. Come up here, please. Yeah, just lift your hands, look to heaven, and just begin to pray. It's not coming through a human hand. It's coming from the Father. It's coming from the Father. It's coming in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Just begin to reach right now. Just begin to reach right now. Yeah. There is power. Come on, come on, come on.
to build every chain, build every chain, build every chain.
want all of you to lift your hands right now. Father, bless your sons and daughters. Everyone, God, from front seat to the back in the middle. Spirit of God, Holy Spirit, will you allow your sons and daughters to experience your presence, God, your sweet presence. God, you love us so much. You don't want to love us from far. God, when I love Analethia, I don't want to love her from another country. I want to be next to her. I want to I put her to sleep. I want to sing songs to her. I want to rock her. I, I want to I be with her. I want to love her from close. And God, as you look down today in this sanctuary, hands lifted up, God. Hearts lifted up. God, you're saying, I want to love you, daughter. I want to love you, son. I want to love you close. I want you to I want you to hear my heartbeat. I want you to experience my embrace. I want you to hear my voice. I want you to know that I love you, that you are my beloved, that I never, I never forget about you, that I always see you. I am always with you. Whether you feel spiritual or not, whether you're praying or not, I love you and I am with you and I want to reveal more of my love to you in a deeper way than ever than ever you've ever than you've ever experienced as your hands are lifted spirit of god visit them visit us visit us god in our bedrooms visit us god in our cars as we're driving visit us god in our family visit us in your love god it's not about a show but it's about your love. God, I don't want Alethea to just know in her head that I love her, that I'm her mother. But I want her to experience my love. I want her to feel my love. I want her to know and feel that she is my precious baby girl. Holy Spirit, will you allow your sons and daughters to know and feel and experience that you love us. God, take us to another level of intimacy this week. Tomorrow, God, as we wake up, as we're driving to our work or to our school, God, on Wednesdays, on Thursdays, on Fridays, God, throughout the week, open our eyes to see your love. Open our hearts, God. Sensitize our five senses to your presence and to your love. And let the hunger and thirst and desperation to know your presence more. Let it arise. Awaken us, God, in the middle of the night. Saying, God, I'm hungry for more of you. I want to know and I want to feel your love. So, Father, I bless everyone in this sanctuary. I bless them with more intimate manifest presence of Jesus Christ to a deeper level of knowing and feeling your love. To hear your voice saying, I have not forsaken you. I love you and I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are my love. Father, we embrace your voice. We embrace your presence. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.